Blog Talk Radio. There's a direct relationship between having the businesses and being in prison. Go find an Asian, see how many Asians you can find in American prisons. They ain't going to be in there. But 51% of your prison will be black because you don't, blacks don't have any businesses and industries. There's a direct link. Blacks won't practice group economics. Blacks won't practice group politics. If you don't practice, you're setting yourselves up. I told that five-story building, you set yourself to get wiped out. Understand the nature of race, which is economics. If you, if you build the first floor, it's economic. Build your businesses and your industries. Control buildings and industry, and put that pools in your money. And hold that money. And, it's a, and practice group economics <clears throat> with it. Arab and Asian money bounces 12 or 13 times for at least. Jewish money bounces 18 times. Black folk got to learn how to practice group economics. Black Americans spend every penny they get outside their own community. Then you take the money and the wealth that you get from that first floor and go to the second floor. The second floor is politics. You then take that money on the first floor and you control your politics. Black folk must quit allowing people to tell them to go out and vote. Vote for what? Nobody's going to do anything for black folk in politics. Politics is controlled by money. Major corporations who got the money. That's what controls politics. If you have no money, you have no say-so, you have no benefits coming. So you take your money and you control and you take your money on the first floor, you buy every politician on the second floor. And any politician you can't buy, you rent or lease them to get what you need. Then once you get the second floor under control with the politician, with your money, then you go to the third floor. The third floor is then is the police department and the court system. You take your money from the first floor and your politics on the second floor and you control the court system and the police department. Then the fourth floor, you t- the fourth floor then is media. You then take the money that you generate off the first floor from business and industries <clears throat> and you go after radio stations, TV stations, newspapers, and cable systems so that you can now inform and communicate with your own people. Right now, <clears throat> black folk only control less than 35 thousandths of 1% of the media in the United States. Out of 12,000 radio stations, black folk own about something like about 75 or 80. That's all. You own no cable systems. You don't have a daily newspaper. You have nothing of importance. You don't. You got about one black TV station. And you, so you can't communicate with your people. You can't inform your people. You can't do anything. You can have Rush Limbaugh and all the rest of the guys talking about racism all day long and bad-mouthing you and O'Reilly. They can talk, call black folk all kind of names all day long. What are you going to do? You can't respond. You can't even communicate with your own people because you, you don't have an economic base. 51% of all the prisons in the United States are black people. You know, even though you only make up 12% of the population. That's no accident. It's because you don't control the economics and the politics. And they're going to go after the weakest people they can get their hands on to incarcerate. That's the black folk. And what are you going to do in response to them when they, when they, over, when they, when they over incarcerate you? You're going to go out and have a march or demonstration. We're going to march. March for what? Who cares? Marches never changed anything. If white immigrants can come to this country 50 years ago with nickels and dimes and no education and come here and pool their little nickels and dimes and no education and set up little stores, develop these stores into larger stores, develop this into an industry which creates job opportunities for whites. Since Lincoln was supposed to have freed the black man 100 years ago, and today the black man, according to the government economist, has spending power of $20 billion per year. We feel that with the black man spending $20 billion a year, not setting up any businesses, not creating any industry, not creating any job opportunities for his own kind, he's not in a moral position to point the finger today at the white man 
and tell the white man that he's discriminating against him for not giving him a job in factories that he has he himself set up. If the black man has $20 billion, and these so-called Negro leaders are such geniuses that they can integrate white restaurants and integrate white factories and integrate, force themselves into that which the white man has set up, they should use this same ingenuity to show the black people how to pool our wealth and set up something of our own. And then we won't have to force our way into his anymore. One more thing I would like to point out concerning what he said about 125th Street. We don't waste our time on 125th Street, but you can reach more people in the street who want to change than you can in the bourgeoisie society, the bourgeoisie church, and the bourgeoisie circles. We, our program is directed toward the man in the street. So we spend our time in the street, and what we do with that man, instead of trying to change the white man in your mind and make, make you accept us, we change the mind of the black man and make him accept himself. And as soon as he accepts himself, he'll solve his own problem. He won't be trying to force himself into your factory and into your bedroom and into your kitchen. While I've been in South Africa, I've heard a number of heartbreaking stories. But there is one that struck me on a very personal level. I met Janine on my journey through the Karoo where I've been listening to some horrific accounts of murder, rape, and robbery. Like many other white farming families, Janine's was torn apart in one of South Africa's daily farm attacks. I sat down to hear her story firsthand. We, we are now third generation on this farm, <laughs> third generation. My grandfather farmed here um, until he died of a heart attack. And then my dad inherited this portion, and his brother inherited the top farm, which my dad eventually, over the years, bought back. So it's been in the family for more than 100 years. I grew up here. Um, myself and my three siblings grew up here, went to school in Hrafnet, which I'm sure you came to, and then went to study in Cape Town. And yeah, it was always our dream to come back, and it was always the intention to come back, not under these circumstances, though. My dad was living alone. My mum was in an Alzheimer's home. So this is quite hard. Because we were so safe here, there was actually no handle on the back door. It was always open. And um, this security gate was right here. So my dad heard the knock on the door, opened the door, was shot in the stomach. Managed to get to the phone. Yeah. Phone my aunt. Said I've been shot in the stomach. Put the phone down. Phone our neighbour. And while he was... He said to Jeremy, I've been shot. And while he was on the phone to Jeremy, Jeremy heard the shots. Just kept going. And there was one shot that Rickers showed against that wall. All the time my dad's being shot. Back, arms, legs. And my dad slumped over this chair. Slumped forward over this chair. And he was shot in the back of the head here. Just execution style. In the back of the head. So it was eight. They found eight cartridges. But six. He was shot six times. So this is where my dad died. He was killed. Okay. I know, for what, you know, for what, he was a good man. He was an awesome man. And to shoot somebody six times, execution to start. Can I take a breather, please? You 
it gets easier and never does, unfortunately. My dad was, and Louis will back me up and everybody will back me up, but my dad was the most loving person. He would literally give me the shirt of his back to help you. There were so many farmers, and Louis knows, that were battling, that my dad would say, yeah, use my back to get on your feet. Do that. And he cold-bloodedly just All they took um, about 20,000 rand in the safe. They took that, got themselves to feed and fridge, and then hit the road. Janine's story is not especially remarkable nor is it out of the ordinary. What is remarkable is her resilience. Like many of her people, Janine has returned to the farm where her father was killed to rebuild her life in the face of unspeakable horror. He's killed two people. He's destroyed two families. And he got 15 years. With these 15 years, he can sit for six six years and he'll come back. And he'll he'll probably come and kill us or kill another farm because he knows how easy it is that he's got away with it. justice hasn't been saved yet. These kind of attacks are not uncommon in South Africa. In fact, the statistics show a white farming family is attacked every single day. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And they're targeting the vulnerable. You know, the 65... Plus, that's who they're targeting. And it is just going to get worse. And then the farmers are going to leave. They're going to have no choice but to leave. Are the government doing anything about this? No. Nothing. The government have, have done nothing. I haven't heard from a government official. Not once. Not at all. No phone call, nothing. So... What the intention is, it remains a mystery to us. Janine and other families like hers have told me they are not convinced these brutal attacks are just random acts, but that the South African government may very well be complicit in allowing them to happen as they continue their political agenda to drive out white farmers and take their land. With overwhelming agreement, unanimous agreement, has resolved that the expropriation of land without compensation should be amongst the mechanisms available to government to give effect to land reform and redistribution. That is what is important. While watching the crime rate skyrocket against white farmers and the government's rhetoric get more radical, I can only help but wonder how much worse is this going to get in the coming years? Hey guys, 
This video is just one of the many stories I want to show you from my trip here in South Africa. In fact, when I get back, I plan on working on a longer form documentary about the entire trip. If you'd like to find out more about how you can support that project and other stories being told like this one, or if you'd like to find out about the people in the stories and how you can support them and the farmers of South Africa, please check out the links in the description below. And of course, a big thank you to everyone who has been supporting this trip and been super encouraging to me and this channel. It means the world to me. I'll see you next time. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker, and uh, the leadership of the EFF. This is a motion that seeks to unite black people in South Africa. And ordinarily, if leadership was provided, we shouldn't be having this debate because the land should have been returned into the hands of the rightful owners. We all know that uh, the Dutch gangsters arrived here and took our land by force. And uh, the struggle has since been about the return of the land into the hands of rightful owners. Yet those who went to negotiate on behalf of our people during the negotiations sold out this fundamental principle which constituted the struggle against colonialism. So those who claim to be radical enough and who want radical change today should actually be in the forefront of agreeing that this constitution must be changed to make it possible for our people to own the land. It can be correct that the less than 10% of the population owns almost more than 75% of the land. And those people who own the land happen to be, in an acceptable language, private uh, people like individuals, trusts, and companies. But when you search deep as to who are these people, these are white people who are still owning our land. We remain a conquered nation, even when we claim to have democracy. We remain a conquered nation because white monopoly capital still owns the means of production, and at the center of that is the land question. The dominance of white people, it cannot go away, particularly white supremacy for as long as land is not returned into the hands of the people. We are the only country where we say revolution has taken place, yet those who are oppressing us have not lost anything after the revolution. We remain as we were even before 1994. So we are saying that black people, all of us, we need to unite and amend the constitution so that we can expropriate land without compensation. There is no white person who will understand that clarion call because they don't know the pain of being landless. Only those who have gone through a passage of being landless will appreciate where we come from on the issue of the land. The issue of the land cannot be a campaigning issue. The issue of the land cannot be a rhetorical question. The issue of the land should be an issue of commitment. Honorable members, we have taken an oath here. And when we take an oath, 
We are simply saying we are loyal to the land. But how can we be loyal to the land which is in the hands of private individuals? We must be loyal to the land that belongs to us. Majority of our people say South Africa belongs to them. Yet they do not have proof to show that indeed South Africa belongs to them. Because many of them do not even know how a title deed looks like. Many generations died without even knowing how a title deed looks like. It is only through the expropriation of land without compensation that our people will be the rightful owners of this country. We cannot keep on saying South Africa belongs to all who live in it, yet we have nothing to show. Today the ANC should come with the EFF, there is 6% available, we give it to you without no condition to, uh, to amend the constitution and take the land. If you don't agree with us today, it means you are disagreeing with Honorable Ayanda Drodlo. If you don't agree with us today, it means you don't, you don't agree with your outgoing president on the issue of expropriation of land without compensation, even the Minister of Land. This is a matter that can unite black people. This is a matter that all of us should stand together and isolate white monopoly capital. This is a matter that can say to us, this is a genuine call which we as black people can identify with. So the ANC, 6% Shiona, Relefayona, Arjen Lefase, Rilimeng, Arjen Lefase, Rage di Feme, Arjen Lefase, Refebat Barna, Babele Marae, Babele, a place to call home. Honorable Nzimande, we have already started taking the land. If you vote against this, it's a waste of time. We are already giving our people the land, and we are not ashamed of that. People of South Africa, where you see a beautiful land, take it, it belongs to you. Honorable Nguenya Mabila. All right, today's podcast is titled Land, I mean, South Africa Land Grab 2.0. <clears throat> the live stream number six one nine seven six eight two nine four five. Now you just heard Julius uh, uh, Lalima, and let me give you some background on him. He is a socialist. He's anti-capitalist. Uh, might be socialist slash communist, but he's anti-capitalist. And he used to be a part of the ANC African National Congress. He was president elected president of the African National Congress Youth League. And I guess based on some disagreements within the ANC, because you clearly heard his position, he wants land expropriated. In other words, the government take the land without giving compensation to white farmers. To white farmers. All right, now, at the time, uh, he and the ANC saw differently, so he left the ANC. He left the African National Congress and started his own group, Economic Freedom Fighters. So the audio I just played was him in the capacity of Economic Freedom Fighters. All right, and you, you heard well, you heard what the man said. I mean, he's he's trying to. He gives a lot of speeches, and he he is. I, 
he overall he looks like he's trying to do it democratically right and through the system to get the constitution changed in South Africa. But you did hear what he said. If you see a piece of land, go get it. Now, and and the audio before that, you have had there there are several white African farmers who have been killed for their farmland. Now, because this whole thing is really kind of complicated, but now there's another lady. I'm about to play the audio with her. She disagreed with um, somewhere down the line with uh, Julius Malema. And she started a group, Black Land First. So they 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 also want to take land from white farmers, uh, but her ideology is different from because Joseph Malima's organization, Economic Freedom Fighters, is about three years old. It started in 2015, and then there's been another split from that. So let, let's go through um, uh, Land or Death, which is the mantra of um, Black Land, uh, Black Land First, their organization. After the end of apartheid in South Africa, Nelson Mandela's African National Congress was hailed by the world as the leader in the creation of a new socially just progressive rainbow nation, a place where all races would coexist peacefully under a prosperous and fair communist system. But in recent years, we haven't heard much of this idyllic progressive Garden of Eden at all. In fact, the international press doesn't speak of South Africa's political situation very much at all. And when they do, the stories stand in stark contrast to the idea of a rainbow nation. My conversation with farmers and many of the country's white minority made South Africa seem like a nation on the verge of total collapse. So I decided I would try to at least have a conversation with a representative of the ANC in an attempt to understand what they believe is going on. Tabo McQuenna is a man that I've been advised is a powerful force within the ANC. McQuenna is a member of the party's provincial executive committee, has been responsible for the running of South Africa's municipalities, and has been granted multi-million rand contracts by the government in Johannesburg. Here were his thoughts on the current state of the nation. In the past 20 years, we have done very well to try and, you know, build uh, that vision of a rainbow nation, build the economy of our country, compete internationally uh, on, on, on businesses, on sports, on culture. Uh, there is, like, you know, relative safety uh, in the country. We've got the best infrastructure in the world uh, in terms of, like, you know, our transport uh, systems and um, um, even, like, you know, uh, policing and, 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 and safety and that kind of a thing. In a country with one of the highest crime rates, a failing police force, and some of the worst transport systems in the world, these claims struck me as simply untrue. I was getting the sense that Tabo was giving me a government-sanctioned version of the truth. But nevertheless, I pressed on. Particularly, I wanted to know about what everyone keeps calling the land issue. That being the expropriation or redistribution of land from white farmers to the black population. Something all of the country's major parties have promised to do. 
To an outsider, this sounds just a little unfair and like something that would stand in direct contrast to the Rainbow Nation mantra. So I asked Tabo to explain it to me. So there's been like very slow progress in terms of addressing the land or redistributing the land. So, so we must speed up. And it's not the question that government does not have money for compensation or there is no money for compensation in the system. I think it's just part of the problem is that the bureaucracy is way too slow and then it undermines, you know, um, the good objective. So you need to have like cutthroat departments that understand the agency and the plight of the people. When they are required to do their work, they must do it. Are things leaning more towards with or without compensation? <laughs> I don't know. I'm Look, the, the, the decision that has been taken, it's without compensation. As strange and radical as the notion of the government simply taking one person's land and giving it to another because of their skin color may sound to the outside world, Tabo's politics actually quite accurately reflect the rest of South Africa's ruling party. Land expropriation without compensation could be carried out at any time, a threat which has only deepened racial divisions here. Many of these farmers are now the eighth or ninth generations of their family to be farming this land, and they have told me they believe this land is worth dying for, which is why I was curious as to what the government planned on doing if white farmers simply refused to give up their land. There's nothing that government can do that is illegal to the farmers. Neither there is nothing that the farmers can refuse which is uh, which is law. So they don't have much options. It is not the intention of the ANC um, to go and grab the land illegally and then that type of thing. No. We will do it within the prescripts of the laws of this particular country. And then if it means that the laws of this country are not adequate to address that, the first thing to do is to introduce the new laws that allows us to be able to. But once it's law, no farmer no um, person that can come and say that I am going to uh, disobey this law. No, do it at your own peril. So it may be illegal to take the land by force using violence right now, but Tabo seemed to be saying that if whites don't give it up willingly or if they resist, huh, we'll just change the law to allow us to take it violently. This answer took me by surprise, considering the ANC has done a pretty good job of keeping up appearances. But it seems their politics have strayed further from the Rainbow Nation mantra over the years, as their rhetoric more closely mirrors extremist groups like Black First Land First, who proudly tout the line, land or death, by which they're referring to the death of white farmers. Black people have been patient enough we are of the view that we have to fight in order to attain freedom as the black majority in this country. And the fight has to be located in taking back the land and expropriating it back into the people, in seizing the means of production and expropriating everything, or rather redistributing everything equally. And a society that would embody a value system that puts black people first will have to be attained through, 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 through confrontation, unfortunately, through confrontation, unfortunately, because our people have waited for so long, right, 
We've waited for so long and, and, and nothing is happening in terms of changing our lived experience. So it's very important to have a movement such as BLF who's going to say, we don't want your handovers. We don't want you to feel pity for us. We are coming for you and we are going to get everything that you owe. It's ours. Talking to South Africa's black political class, it's quite clear that the image of the rainbow nation we have been sold doesn't quite live up to its promise. In fact, many of the predictions about expropriation of land and civil unrest I heard from rural white farmers are actually echoes of promises spilling from the mouths of the politicians themselves. The question of war in this country is inevitable. It's definitely coming. We are going to fight. There is only one logical conclusion here. If things continue the way the ruling government, the activists and the media are pushing them, and without a major change in the political establishment or serious intervention from Western media and charity, South Africa could very well be looking at a bloody future that will only culminate in almost unimaginable problems for the country. Thank you so much for watching this video. I just wanted to let you know that this is actually just a short clip from a much larger documentary project I'm working on called Farmlands. Now there are a million ways you can help with this project and spread the word about the situation going on in South Africa. If you want to know how you can do that, go down to the links below or visit farmlands.online. I'll see you next time. Okay, now to get, now we're going to take a look at because this whole this whole land thing, if you look at the history of it, who owns the land? Now, we have to look at, and these are some cultural differences, <clears throat> lifestyles. And I mentioned this yesterday. There are two basic lifestyles that mankind has. Fundamental lifestyles, it is. Nomadic you know, in other words, you, you don't stay in one place forever. You move with the seasons. You might move every three months. You might move every six months. And then there's the sedentary lifestyle. You find one place and you camp out there. Historically speaking, in Africa, before there was a political division called South Africa, there were the indigenous people that passed through there, Bantus, Kozin, or I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, they were nomadic, hunter-gatherers, some farmers, but they would move based on the seasons or greener pastures and other places. That was their lifestyle. Still is with a lot of them. And the first Dutch settler, I think he got, they were shipwrecked in 1652. They came from Holland, which the lifestyle, the cultural lifestyle in Holland was sedentary. We find one spot and we build, build our home. So I think a part of this is really a clash of historical cultural differences because even in, in 2018, I know when I, I was over in Europe, um, 
this friend of mine um was used to date a guy that um was from um Senegal and he had, he had passed away, but they found you know when they were clearing out his stuff, she found some of her son's clothes that this guy had packed away. Now, on the surface, in the sedentary or Western lifestyle, it looked like the guy stole something. However, if you look at it culturally, Africa is very diverse. But in his little niche in Senegal, where I think the language, the primary language, they speak French and Wolof. It's it's more like a collective type thing. In other words, what's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. So if if I walk to your house and I see a shirt I like um, and take it, that's all right, based on their culture, because they have a cooperative type culture. And, and of course, if I see something of yours, I, that culture that works there. So I think a big part of this is the cultural clash, cultural differences clashing. I'm going to do some audios right now on the distinction between no, the nomads and uh, and uh, sedentary cultures. In this History Illustrated video, we're going to talk about the vocabulary word nomad. Now, typically when we use this word, we're talking about a group of nomadic people. So I'm going to write nomadic people here. And what that basically means is they have no permanent home. So no permanent home, which means they're constantly wandering around with their livestock and cattle looking for fresh grass and water and things like that to feed their animals and to take care of themselves. So typically we would call them like a wanderer. So I'm going to put wanderer here or a traveler. And these groups of people would be known as nomadic people or simply one of them would be called a nomad. There's been much debate over whether the Indo-European language family was spread by nomadic warriors or by sedentary farmers. The first thesis espouses that Kyrgyz warrior tribes spread the language. The Kyrgyz lived among the steppes along the border of present-day Russia and Kazakhstan. They were a relatively advanced society and one of the first to be able to domesticate animals. Because of their success with breeding animals, they were able to become nomadic herders who soon started to spread in territory. Their nomadic lifestyle made them well-suited to being warriors who would travel and invade nearby lands. A modern-day image along the steppes of Mongolia provides an a insight to what the life of the Kyrgyz might have been many years ago, with nomadic herding still popular there. The Kyrgyz began their conquest moving generally westward from their hearth into modern-day Ukraine and along the Caucasus Mountains. Over the next 500 years, they conquered much of the Balkans, 
and moved into Central Europe as well. And then after that, the Persian sphere of influence grew to include most of Europe, uh, except for the Iberian Peninsula, and also continued to spread south in the Caucasus Mountains into Anatolia and towards present-day Iran. With the spread of the Kurdian population, their Proto-Indo-European language was also spread with them. The theory goes that due to their conquest of land, the Kurdians spread their language out from the hearth to large swaths of the present territory that the Indo-European languages currently occupy. However, the other theory, the sedentary farmer thesis, denies that it was the Kurdians who spread the language. Instead, they insist that the language spread started more than 2,000 years before the Kurdians in eastern Anatolia. This region bore witness to the first group of people to stay in generally one area, using more advanced agricultural techniques to grow their own food, as opposed to hunting and gathering. Their agricultural techniques allowed for a more steady amount of food to be produced for a group, which led to a higher rate of reproductive success. This depiction of Neolithic farming is an example of uh, techniques that might have been used by this population in eastern Anatolia. As people were more likely to survive in these populations, they started to gain more land. The spread of both the Proto-Indo-European language and their farming techniques went hand in hand. They first spread into modern Iran and around the Caspian Sea, and actually what the hearth of the Kurdans would later be. Around this time, they also spread west into Greece. Over the next thousand years, they spread into the Balkans, Italy, and Spain, which is a region that, they, that the Kurdans actually never reached. And then the thousand years after that, they completed their conquest of the British Isles and of eastern Ukraine. The techniques and language reportedly further went through Central Europe and reached most of the European continent. However, I believe that the nomadic warrior theory is more convincing. The spread of ideals is more likely through war than peace. Many times, conquering people have brought their language and culture with them, providing a very easy way to spread their ideals. This has been seen in the numerous conquests of England that paved the way for the English language, or the Spanish bringing their language to Latin America, where it is now the predominant form of communication. This spread of language through war seems to be a common trend in human history, and it makes sense that the Kurdians were once to spread the Proto-Indo-European language. I find the spread of agricultural techniques carrying language with them to be a process that is not necessarily stable. These people don't have much motivation for moving from their homeland, whereas the Kurdians in conquering land clearly do. Moving from their homeland is what carries the language to new people in the most efficient way. While both seem to be supported by some evidence, I find the Kurdian hypothesis more likely.
thing I want to talk about today is this massive situation in South Africa. Now, for the past two weeks, understandably, we've had a lot of U.S.-focused news, but, but there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in South Africa. We, of course, have talked about Cape Town, South Africa, the running out of water. Their day zero is currently set for July 9th. That's the day that the city will begin shutting off water except to essential services. We also talked about the longtime president of South Africa being removed and now replaced with Cyril Ramaphosa. But today's story deals with one of South Africa's longest-held issues, and that is land. South Africa has some of the worst economic disparity and income inequality in the world. And land ownership is a part of that inequality. Since the start of colonization by the Dutch and then the British, black South Africans have lost land. And while that loss of land started hundreds of years ago, it is still a very sore point in the country. When we look to South Africa today, 72% of the available farmland is owned by white people. Now, after the end of apartheid and the rights of black Africans were restored, land reform became a big ticket issue in the country. And at this point, I just want to say, I hope you can keep it in your pants because we are going to sexy town. We're going to be talking about constitutional history. I said calm down. And the reason we're going there is because to understand what we're going to discuss in South Africa, you need to understand part of the post-apartheid constitution. That constitution specifically had provisions regarding land reform. And without getting too technical, the South African constitution places a positive obligation on the state to, quote, take reasonable legislative and other measures within its available resources to foster conditions which enable citizens to gain access to land on an equitable basis. So they must actively try. And additionally, Section 25 of the Bill of Rights also explicitly allows the state to expropriate property, but only in cases where land reform is the purpose. However, and this is the key note, the state must provide compensation, specifically saying the amount of which and the time and manner of payment of which have either been agreed to by those affected or decided or approved by a court. And the amount of which is generally, quote, just and equitable, reflecting an equitable balance between the public interest and the interests of those affected. Now, despite Section 25 allowing the forcible taking of the land, the policy since 1994 has been willing buyer, willing seller, aka the government goes to an owner, offers a price, and the owner decides whether or not to sell. And so based on that, that usually meant the landowners would only sell sell land at market value or higher. Now with this, the issue that many in South Africa had was that land redistribution to black Africans was extremely slow and the government consistently said that it would never meet its goal. And so ideas were proposed over the years to get rid of willing buyer, willing seller, and just take the land and offer what they would. But still, it was said even that would be slow because of court cases arguing, quote, just an equitable compensation, right? Things would slow down because someone would go to white owned land, offer a quarter or half of what it's worth, and they would say, that's not fair according to the constitution. Well, yesterday we got massive news around this. Yesterday, South African parliament voted to have the constitution changed. Julius Malema of the Economic Freedom Fighters, EFF, introduced a bill that would revise section 25 of the constitution. The bill would remove the part that said landowners were to be, quote, subject to compensation, instead opting for expropriation without compensation. And when he introduced the bill, he said, quote, the time for reconciliation is over. Now is the time for justice. We must ensure that we restore the dignity of our people without compensating the criminals who stole our land. Now, despite the EFF only controlling 6% of parliament, the bill was also backed by that new president we talked talked about Cyril Ramaphosa and the massive ANC party. And so that helped pass the bill with a vote of 241 to just 83. The ANC's rural affairs minister saying, the ANC unequivocally supports the principle of land expropriation without compensation. There is no doubt about it, land shall be expropriated without compensation. Now this is close to, but not completely a done deal. The bill is now with the parliament's constitutional review committee. They have until August 30th to figure out how to best implement the changes to the constitution itself. And as far as what this means, well, it, it's very simple. After August 30th, this is implemented as a is. The government, based on the color of your skin, can see your land, take it, not pay you a damn thing for it. Now, in South Africa, there have been mixed reactions. We've seen many black South Africans supporting the move, saying it's a speedy way to get their land back. But not all. Fandeka Mbabama from the Democratic Alliance Party said that the new rules were just a way to cover up years of corruption, of mismanagement, and corruption under the old constitution by the ANC. Saying, quote, by arguing for expropriation without compensation, the ANC has been gifted the perfect scapegoat to explain away its own failure. Making this argument lets the ANC off the hook on the real impediments. Corruption, bad 
bad policy and chronic underfunding. Expropriation without compensation would severely undermine the national economy, only hurting poor black people even further. You also have other leaders fearing there was a danger for those who think equality in our lifetime equated that we must dominate whites. And that last sentiment is a fear by white Africans. Politician Ernst Root saying, this motion is based on a distorted image of the past. The term expropriation without compensation is a form of semantic fraud. It is nothing more than racist theft. The EFF's view on redistribution is merely a racist process to chase white people off their land and establish it within the state. This is not only deceiving, but also a duplication of the economic policies that the world's worst economy has put in place. Root's also fearing that South Africa will end up like Zimbabwe. And what he's referencing there is Zimbabwe sanctioned a purge of white Africans in the country and took their land in the 2000s, and that actually ended up ruining the economy. There they saw there were no trained black farmers, the land went underused. Many of those who received the land still ended up working on neighboring white land. This also led to less food production and economic downturn. We also see that white Africans have felt under attack for some time now. And in fact, there has been a spree of torturing, rapes, and murders of white farmers by black Africans in South Africa recently. And while I do want to point out that those attacks, those, those murders, those rapes aren't sanctioned by the government, I do want to point out that Malema, the guy who proposed this change, just so you understand his mindset and, and how he's talking to his supporters. In 2016, he said he wanted confiscation of the land, but that he was, quote, not calling for the slaughter of white people at least for now. You know, sometimes you're in the mood, sometimes you're not. You're feeling a little genocide today, or just taking people's land based off of the color of their skin with no money. You know, it, it's just, you know, it feel like a Monday or a Saturday. And on that ridiculously horrifying note, that's that's the end of this story. And I do want to pass the question off to you. What do you think about the government's actions here? Do you support the move because you see it as the correcting of theft from hundreds of years ago, or no, this is just a massive racist problem? And of course, because this is the Philip DeFranco Show, I'd love to know your thoughts on this, the first story, anything in between. Let me know in those comments down below. And that's where I'm going to end today's show. Violent conflict between nomadic haters from northern Nigeria and sedentary agrarian communities in the central and south zones have escalated in recent times and are spreading southward, threatening the country's security and stability. We must find a solution. We cannot just be here and people are dying and we're killing and those who kill must be held to account. We must hold people to account. We try just kill people and go away. We must hold people to account. That's why we are here. I will go around. I will take a look and see for myself. You know. But the most important, the most important thing of all is that there must be peace. We must ensure that there is peace. Farmers accused the Fulani herdsmen of failing to control their cattle and of damaging crops. In return, the Fulani accused farmers of stealing their cattle. Today, everyone in the world has seen what has happened to Fulani herdsmen in Adamawa. It has happened before in Taraba State. It has been happening in other places. We are law-abiding citizens. We will still maintain law and order. Even now that you are interviewing me, they are burning their houses in the bush. Understanding farmers' health meant conflict could be the way forward and to prevent the crisis from escalating. They argue that the government should strengthen security. Under food security and food chain. But if there's conflict, it will affect the product, their production capacity. It will affect the production of the cattle. It will also affect the production of the farmer. And, it, and generally, it will both affect food security in Nigeria. Well, it's now for the Nigerian government to wake up from its own great slumber to check the issue of incessant conflict. And if not, it may take time for the country to recover its lost glory, particularly at this moment that the country is facing Boko Haram's challenges. In Yola.
Ibrahim Ablaziz reporting for African News. Difference between nomadic and sedentary. Between nomadic and sedentary, a great difference can be observed in their lifestyles. From the beginning of time, the human being has evolved passing different stages such as the Stone Age, the Medieval Era, etc. In each phase, certain differences have taken place in the manner of living of the human being. Nomadic and sedentary can also be viewed as two such societies where the lifestyle of the human being greatly differ. Nomadic societies do not have permanent settlements but travel from one part to the other. Even today, there are people of some cultures who prefer a nomadic lifestyle to a sedentary lifestyle. A sedentary society is settled in one place permanently and does not move from place to another. In the modern world, this has become the mainstream way of life. Through this article let us identify the possible differences between nomadic and sedentary cultures. Okay, so today's podcast, South Africa Land Grant 2.0. <clears throat> there is, um, like I said, it's we can't cover this topic all in one podcast. We've done about two. Uh, yeah, just second one on this. We'll do others probably all of next week. If you look at um, South Africa, well, like I say, historically, <clears throat> um, who owns the land? Who was there first? Like the Bantus, you can read about them. They migrated to that area. This is before the, the, the white man came there. The first white man that that uh, was at least recorded there, a Dutch ship was was uh, shipwrecked um, in what we now call uh, South Africa, and they built a fort. Now. We also had to take a look at the world population back then. But let's compare it to today. Even today, with 7 billion people counting, man does not even occupy 1% of the land mass on planet Earth today with over 7 billion people. That's today. There's an incredible abundance of land basically anywhere you go. If you know, if you if you look at it on the continental or even a state level or provincial level, incredible land. Now, Africa, which is big enough to fit the United States, China, and some other countries, it's the I mean, the land, the amount of available land here in the United States for sale is mind-boggling. But if you switch it over to Africa, which is much larger, it's, I can't even find a word. There is a lot of land available, but it is something about man. No matter what color or race he is, it's something about man that he likes to go take somebody else's stuff. Even in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not cover. It, it's, it's, and I guess this podcast, it's my person that inspired it, who was a housejacker, 
trying to jack my house. That person, person's father, was a general contractor, and she had a brother-in-law who was a contractor in home improvement. And, but they never thought about, because I suggest, I said, look, you got a father who's a general contractor, you got a brother who's a general contractor, why don't you go get a patch of land and let them build you a house? And y'all run a business. They could have easily done over a million, two million dollars a year. <clears throat> gross, gross receipts and, 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 and just doing that. Because her skill set was um, like administrative assistant, secretary. But it's something about it within man's DNA that they're totally blind to the opportunities that surround them and they want what you have. And if you look at a lot of the great, so-called great discoverers and conquerors and all that, Genghis Khan and, you know, Columbus and all these other people, is they always go for what somebody else else has developed. And there's plenty out here for everybody. If there's plenty out here for everybody in 2018, there was definitely plenty of them out in 1652. So I, I, I'm doing more research on that. It's like I said, the, the Dutch that got shipwrecked there, they built a fort. So I, I'm guessing, and I might have to do more research on it, nobody was there, you know, what we would call the indigenous population because they were nomads. They went with the flow. Their standard, this, this is where this cultural differences comes into. Their life, their lifestyle, we can't, it's really not fair to compare it to a Western lifestyle. You know, their, their standards of wealth is, even today, their standards of wealth is family, within the family, kids. The more kids, the merrier. You got your goats. You got your cow. They don't need a Maserati or a Bentley. They don't need a Mercedes or a BMW or a Rolls Royce. They don't need a McMansion. Because to them, it it, it wouldn't serve a purpose. They want land off the grid, and they want that family that can work the land, and they teach the kids generational wealth on how to, you know, the farm, on how to tend to the cattle, and how to move from season to season or move to, I mean, when this place is, you know, the prosperity isn't as good here, how to move to another place and keep up the prosperity. Cultural differences. It's, just, it's not one that's better than the other one. It's just cultural differences. But the way to and, and the, the descendants of the mantles, whatever they are today, is completely different than what it was in 1652. Because although South Africa is going through this right now, Zimbabwe is going through it, Uganda's went through it with Idi Amin, and uh, Zimbabwe uh, with Robert Mugabe, the people that are going to end up getting that land 
through expropriation, which is deadlier in my opinion, and then uh, what do you call it? Just and not justification, um, eminent domain. It's going to go to a small handful, if you can even call it a handful, of political cronies. That's that's what happened under Robert Mugabe. His wife got broke off nice. It's going to be a foul person that's marching. Some people have even killed some people. They're going to get left ass out. And we already see the power split. Julius Malema had rank up in the ANC, African National Congress, and then he rolled out and started his own group three years ago, Economic Freedom Fighters. And with Finette, another lady, she rolled out from Julius Malema's group and has Black Land First. So we got three organizations, and I'm just thinking – the person that's really winning in this, if you call it a winner at all, would be the invisible bankers. Because bankers bankroll both sides of the table, and they don't lose. But nobody's talking about that yet. So, um, let's go to our phone line here. 773, your mic is on. <laughs> Good morning. I apologize for not being able to be be here yesterday. I had to go to the doctor. But, you know, that's a, that's a solution to this problem. But the system is still going, a part of that system is still working as it was. The different lifestyles is still in force. If you would look at the rich people, they have two or three different homes in America. And I'm sure that that same process goes on in the apartheid system, because America, to me, was the inventors of apartheid. So when you find that there's somebody or some people, a group of people, that want to move to Florida, what do they do? They buy a home there in Florida. And it's theirs. What do they do? They go to Chicago, city like Chicago, New York, California, Texas, to live in a different climate. Now, right. that same process is moving around the world forever because if we look at the indigenous people, uh, the indigenous people would ran off of their land and they moved seasonally. If there was winter, they went south. If there was, if there was uh, summertime, they went north to feed us, as you stated feed their stock and uh, have have a good life, them and their family. That has been going on and it's still going on today because that's the way the world was created. And it doesn't, the cronies are the people whom says, oh, well, you can't move here because I own it. You own what? You took it from, you took, you took land, America, from the indigenous people whom was here first. They should have first choice of where they want to live. Now, you went and got people from Africa, and you brought them here so that they could work for you for no money. And we're talking about ownership of land. These white people don't own any land. 
anywhere. Everything they got, they took it. Through constitutional laws, passing laws. No, who created the well, law system? Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, question. Okay. The, 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 the two different fundamental lifestyles, nomadic and um, sedentary. The nomadic lifestyle, they didn't keep any records. And then, you know, there was no such thing as a, you know, a, no agreement, in other words, I own this patch of land and here's a title deed and no paperwork. Whereas with the, uh, the sedentary people coming out of Europe, they had a records-keeping system because Daniel Boone, the frontiersman Daniel Boone, same thing. He had some land taken from him because it wasn't recorded because he, he, he was in Pennsylvania and he moved out to Kentucky. And I think he eventually moved out to Missouri. He kept on moving out as the – he didn't live in the United States. He kept on moving away as the – moving west as the United States expanded. So the um, the Europeans – they they have they have a record system. In other words, here's a patch of land, here's when it was purchased, uh, here's what was paid, uh hit put give us the name you want on it, and here's your plot of land. They set that system up basically so there wouldn't be any property disputes. Whereas the nomadic tribe of people um did not do that. So I, I think I'm looking at it as that's why I see a cultural difference. You have one lifestyle of people that didn't keep records, and then you have another lifestyle of people that keep records. And some kind of way, what do we have to do to meet in the middle? Yeah, well, that's where wars start. We want to meet in the middle. That because <laughs> I'll say this. Land, you say that it's your land, so why should it be the one of our land? I, I like that. I like that system about what you said about the, the shirt. You see a shirt that I have that you like, and I'm not using it. Well, I, I gotta collect these all these clothes that I have today that I haven't used right. since six, seven years. You say, "Oh, I like this jacket. I like that." Well, why not? Why can't you have it? I've given away, and since I've been down sick. I'm giving away about five different leather jackets that I can't wear. Why can't I wear? Because I've lost weight. So why should I keep them around even though I had them first? Why should I say, oh, you can't have this? And they lay it in the, in the closet and rot. That all doesn't well, make now, any sense. Well, no, but, but plus, all right, here, here's the distinction though. If I ask you, okay, I like that jacket. Can I borrow it? All right, that's asking you. But in the example, this goes to a cultural difference. You have some people that have a cultural difference. What's mine is mine is what's yours is yours. So they take it because without asking permission because that's the way they roll in their culture. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Right. I would ask. Yeah. Because, you know, in the Western culture, if we take something without asking permission, it's called stealing. Yes, However, in other cultures, it, it's not. Cultural difference. So, I, you know, like yes, I said, this whole thing in South Africa, it, it's 
it's it's comp you know the way I'm looking at it because I I got a lot more research to do with it, but it it's um it's well and you already said it when you got these cultural differences and you got to meet in the middle and that 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 brings about war many times now they they got a political process that they're going through right now but the the uh, Julius Malema's group uh, which broke off the economic freedom fighters. Um, and like I say, he's anti-capitalist. And then the uh, Black Land First uh, people that split off from him. Uh, it, you know, I I don't know how this is going to end up. I don't know how it's going to end up um, because they had the the current system that they have now is willing buyer, willing seller. But Malema's group and the other group. They say that's taking too long. I like the, I like the willing buyer and willing seller thing. That way, there's no violence and nothing else. But yeah, that's the one I like, and I think yeah. there could be an agreement come to that because now you got to talk about uh, you you got to talk about the work, who gets what, and you also got to talk about the population on the land that you're talking about. So and see, that's, that's what the political cronyism comes into, because there's only people that, in my, if, we, if we judge on what Mugabe did, okay, there's only people that are going to, or even over here, the people that are going to get that land on, on the political cronies. The yep. people who put cronies, bank loans, yep. that's who's going to get the land. Correct. Um, let, let's take another and call here. Fortune Eric called your mic is open. Hey, how you doing, brother LA? Fine, fine. Uh I'm uh I'm on my lunch break now. I started sharecropping since I last talked to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so you know I don't have any worries, but uh, I got to hurry up and see what I got to say because I'm all I'm on Jim Bob's uh, farm, and I don't, I don't want to get a beating, so I, okay. I better make it quick. All right. <laughs> Look, have you, I got two sins for you. Uh, have you ever heard that saying, we can't see the forest for the trees? I have and heard the other one is, And the other one is, you know, we're looking at something with our eyes wide shut. And the thing I, is, no, is I this. Heard, I heard of the movie Eyes Wide Shut, but... I wrote it that the way you, you just put it up. Well, in this case, we're looking at something with our eyes wide shut. <laughs> I'm going to start off with we can't see the forest for the trees. Okay. Look, I heard the lady on the documentary talking about farmers getting killed and, you know, they murdered a father and everything, and these white farmers getting killed and getting the land taken from them. You know, everybody got sympathy for a band of barbarians going over to country to country, squatting on people's land and then killing them and taking it and then passing laws amongst thieves. Now, nobody felt sorry for all of those African tribesmen when the Afrikaners, the Dutch and the English, was over there killing people and taking the land. You know, they were just a bunch of savages. A bunch of savages. And like you said, they were nomads, so they didn't have rights to property because they didn't have any paperwork. Well, look, those people have something more sophisticated than paperwork. 
They had an honor system, and tribes more or less knew where each other's territory was, and they respected it. And sometimes they went to war. But the thing is, they had enough, uh, I guess you might say, integrity to say, well, look, this tribe has that spot over there. We got ours. As long as they don't infringe on us, we won't infringe on them. And then you had a bunch of barbarians come over by Cape, Cape, what is it, Cape, 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 uh, the Europeans that sell it, Cape, however, what the heck it is, put up a fort because the natives say, well, look, you can go ahead on and put up a fort here and rest yourself while you're trying to circumnavigate Africa. And those barbarians say, well, look, this land here is valuable. Well, let's go ahead on and take it. They didn't have paperwork. When they first got there, they didn't have paperwork. They just went in. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely so, right. Would that be, yeah, so with that being said, yes, yeah, the clash of cultures, but the thing is that doesn't give anybody a right to come in and take something and then make laws amongst themselves and say, now nah, this is my land. So with that being said, you know they've done this all over the world. You can go anywhere in the world and you've seen where Europeans have gone and taken land, and their justification is, is that these people are savages and they're nomads. So with that being the case, now, the thing is, with our eyes wide shut, I heard Jesse Jackson say this, and, like, I haven't been able to prove it. He said that when they first set up the apartheid system, they came over to the United States, and they looked at Alabama's state constitution, and they based the uh, South African apartheid law on Alabama's constitution. Okay. Well, you know what the deal is with this. When Manda, and look, it was in your documentary. She said when the leaders of the ANC struck a deal to put Mandela in there for office, they did not. They did not go in and talk about redistribute, redistributing the wealth. Well, the thing is, brother Elliot, you're a land man. You know if people don't have land. They don't have power. They don't have a vested interest, and they can't feed themselves. Now, right. I looked it up after your podcast yesterday. After I got off the farm, I looked up the parent podcast. <laughs> it said, it said, <laughs> it said that seventy-five to eighty percent of the land is in private individuals' hands, and. Erroneously, or whether it's fact or not, it said 40,000 families controls 75 to 80% of the land in Africa. And then it broke it down and said some is in corporations, some is in individual farms' hands, some is in trusts, and some are bought by outside interests, corporate interests. And it said they're called, and let me get it straight because I'm out in the field here now, it said that the land that the 75 to 80% of the land that was owned was owned by, it was called commercial agriculture. The other 10% was owned by shantytowns, and the others owned by urban uh, urban holdings. Well, the thing is, is this. When you say farm, a lot of people visualize that it's an individual farmer with just maybe 100, 200 acres. But I want you to prove me out to be a liar. But the thing is, those white farmers in Africa, Southern Africa, South Africa, 
They're talking about a range. They're talking about thousands of acres of land. So now when they talk, when they talk about going in and reapportioning the land, what they're talking about is pitching off some of that land that sometimes those guys got tens of thousands of acres of land that they're farming and having uh, using for cattle ranges. So my thing is this. Yeah, that land needs to be appropriated. It was stolen land anyway. Whether you, whether they were nomads or not, those people were there before those barbarians came there. And the thing is, if those people don't have land and they can't feed themselves, they're going to get desperate and somebody's going to take it. But I will caution to you to say this. The Western powers are not going to allow that to happen. It's going to be a lot of bloodshed because the Western powers depends on the resources of South Africa to be an industrialized country. And the other thing is, is this, like you say, the private bankers are fueling this thing because they want to go in and and more or less profit from it. But the thing is, yes, something needs to be done. Now, what needs to be done is for those folks to figure it out. But that system cannot remain the way it is. Well stated, uh, Connie. Uh, I, I, I particularly like the part you said, um, the integrity. That was the system that, matter of fact, is still used today. With the, uh, you know, the uh, the noble, I mean, not noble, but the uh, nomadic uh, peoples in Af- uh, not only in uh, Africa, but in other countries as well. Uh, they know that you might see a vast I mean, land forever that nobody's using, but they know another group of people that's, you know, when they come in whatever season, that's where they – that's their spot. So um, I I don't know how – I mean, I don't know what they're judging, you know, how they're going to split up this land or whatever, but it's um, – I'm still doing research on it. But you, you made up uh, – you brought up some very good points, particularly uh, the record-keeping system. Now, you have to look at that. You got a bunch of thieves. <laughs> so it's – um, and that system still exists today. So, well, um, well brother Elliot, brother Elliot, you got to look at it like this: uh, the people that's doing the talking, the what is it, the Freedom Party, or what it is, they're just talking without a plan. All of them are talking without a plan. See, the white farmers got a plan, and their plan is. They're putting out documentaries like you just played about white farmers getting killed and people taking their land and everything. And what they're right. doing is they're setting it up to where the world community is going to have pity on them and bring in those outside forces, military forces, to go in and say, hey, we need to stop this slaughter. You know, they built this they built this thing up with uh, Gaddafi and uh, Saddam. He's killing right. his own people and everything, and we have to come in. All of this is being propagandized right now. So when this thing does come to fruition, they're having excuse to come in. Now, I know you know this, and I know Brother Pleasant knows this. See, they already have AFRICOM over there now. See, there's one thing about Caucasian barbarians. See, they see 50 years in advance. They saw this coming. They know. They know that these natives, these indigenous people are going to get restless and see that they've been had. 
And they know pretty soon there's going to be an uprising because when people get hungry, they get they get desperate. They do desperate things. So all of a sudden, they got Obama to go in there and talk to those African puppets, leaders, to put AFRICOM in there. So they don't set up bases in there now to do what they want to. And one thing that really alarmed me was when a French prime minister got up, I guess he came in the same time Obama did, and he said, that France can't survive without the West African countries that used to be West African colonies. And he said, we have to make sure that our relationship with them stay intact. So with that being said, if South Africa, if they start what uh, the Freedom Party wants to do and what the name is, they're coming in there. They got to. They cannot survive without the minerals and the resources of South Africa. And it's going to be a mess because now, look, they already they already got us here. Look, when you see what's happening to the South Africans, all you got to do the next time you go in the bathroom is look in the mirror. And that's the same thing they did to the black farmers. Systematically took all of that land through the government and through regulation and laws. And now we can't even raise a darn um, white potato for our own use. So, when you see all of this coming, it's already in motion now. They they are preparing for this, but the thing is, it's going to have to be settled one way or the other, and the only way it's going to be settled is violence. Well, you said it all. Um, you're right. They play yeah. chess, not checkers. And uh, this day, you're right. They saw it way in advance. And another very good point you make, <clears throat> they're doing documentaries. Because uh, they did that in um, Zimbabwe. There's a film, a documentary called, uh, what do you call it? It's called Mugabe and the White Father. Yeah. And now white yeah. followers are being invited back in by the uh, by the Zimbabwe government. Yeah. So yeah. you're right. And, and look, since you brought that up, let me say this. Do you know what? Everybody has painted Mugabe out to be a bad person. In which, hey, he has his, you're right, somewhat, because he was a sellout just like Mandela. During the time that they made that agreement, two things happened. Now, he didn't have sense enough to go in as the winner of that struggle to go in and write his own regulations and constitution. He had the uh, the British to write the constitution for Zimbabwe, which uh-huh. you know what happened when they wrote the constitution. And the other thing was, they were supposed to have been compensated by the Western powers to buy the land from those white farmers because and resettle them, and they reneged on the agreement. So years later, those people said, well, wait a minute. The Western powers were supposed to buy, buy, buy the white farmers out, and we were supposed to have the land. And the thing is, it hasn't happened in, the, in these 50 years that we've been independent. So that's when Mugabe was forced by those people to say, look, we need land because the same thing happened in Uganda is happening in South Africa now. And the right. thing is, because because the media has gone in and put a spin on it, we think Mugabe was a bad person, and we think that Zimbabwe's economy is in ruins, and which is not. If I've heard a report that Zimbabwe Zimbabwe is doing well, but because we don't 
as black folk go in and independently look at something, we automatically take their word for it, white media word for it. And you know white media has has, has always liked telling the truth when it comes to black and white issues. But the thing is, I heard a report from a guy that was over there that Zimbabwe is doing well. So now, you know, all of this stuff, we need to start doing our research, like you said, and look back into what is causing all of this stuff. Because if we let them tell the story, you know what's going to happen, and you know what we're going to hear. So I'll sign off right. and let you comment on that. Right. Thank that, all available uh, feedback. Uh, I know just to end it, um, Dudley Products out of uh, Kerrville, North Carolina, they got a set up over in Zimbabwe. So, uh, yeah. And I, I, yeah. So, you're right. Um, we need we need to look at these sources. Anyway, I'm going to sign off for today because I'm recovering from a cold that caught me. So, uh, uh, anyway, everybody have a good rest of the weekend.